You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have a Professor I. Glenn Cohen, a professor of law at Harvard Law School, <clears throat> faculty director at the Petrie Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics. Uh, Glenn, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me. I'm doing very well. Yeah. Well, tell me, what's, um, what is the main focus of your position? What kind of things are you working on? Yeah, I juggle a lot of different things, which is what makes life interesting. I'm dual trained in law and in medical ethics uh, with a good dab of philosophy mixed in. So right now, I would say there's two primary things I'm working on, but then I can also mention a few other things that I've done over the years. So the two primary ones are one, artificial intelligence and healthcare, and two, cutting edge reproductive technologies, including things like gene editing. But in the past, mm. I've also done a bunch of stuff on organ transplantation. I still do some of that now. Medical travel, medical tourism, food and drug law, uh, stuff about commodification, buying and selling of bodily materials, for example, and maybe six or seven other things, you know, the health of football players, translational uh, medicine. Uh, it's a real mix. And that's what I love about my job is I get to kind of mix it up. So what are some of the uh, interesting ethical quagmires or questions that you've seen come up in all these areas you've worked in? Yeah. Okay. So where to start? Uh, so I'll start with what's fresh in my mind, which is uh, let's start with the AI stuff. Uh, you know, so a lot of work right now being done on artificial intelligence, in particular of uh, machine learning, and even more particular, I would say neural net kind of subtype. Uh, happening uh, right now in medicine. Everything from trying to determine how likely a patient is to have a negative cardiac event, uh, approving uh, IDXDR, which allows a regular doctor to have the skill of an ophthalmologist in determining whether a patient has or is likely to suffer from diabetic retinopathy uh, and to do a screening test to deciding whether to put a patient on or to recommend to a patient to be on pre-exposure prophylaxis which is an anti-HIV intent to prevent HIV, in particular, sexually active people. All of these people are developing and many, many more AI systems to kind of uh, deal with and work on. And so these systems are very interesting. They raise a lot of interesting issues. Among them, um, how good are the data sets on which they're based? Is there systemic bias in terms of race, uh, gender, class, geographic location, nationality? Uh, questions about whether patients are even aware that their data is being used in this way and what the rules ought to be in terms of using electronic health records uh, in this way and whether de-identification of electronic health records uh, for these purposes is uh, really possible, whether that's outmoded thinking. 
uh, questions about informed consent for patients when these are used in them, questions on whether FDA or other regulatory agencies in the U.S. should have to pre-clear these algorithms, uh, questions about uh, what happens if these algorithms are changing over time as you're giving them more training data. And then I think very big questions like, uh, what is it will it be like to be a physician 20 years from now compared to the way it is today? And how are we really positioning physicians to work well with these technologies? Or are we still based in kind of a, uh, an older school uh, approach to being a physician? So that's on the uh, AI yeah. front. Good, good uh, question there. Go uh, yeah, go ahead. When you talk about bias, I mean, in a lot of conditions, I would think there needs to be bias. You know, if you try to make an algorithm to, uh, I don't know, talk about how to treat a certain condition, men may, you know, act differently than women or, you know, different races may act very differently than other races. So one group may say, oh, we don't want bias. We don't want, we want the data, you know, pseudonymized and no one to know who they're looking at, but they may have to know that, you know, in order yeah, to become so a, you know, a black guy, then I want data on this certain condition that has to do with, you know, let's say black men instead of just, you know, Chinese women or something instead of a right. mixture or who knows what. So that, that's right, is that what we ideally want, and this is part of the goal of precision medicine, is to be able to give uh, treatment recommendations that are really key to characteristics, near characteristics. But there's an interesting issue here is that uh, in machine learning in particular, the characteristics that turn out to be important may not be the ones that are visible or recognizable uh, to us as non-machine thinkers or people who haven't engaged in this kind of very heavy form of pattern recognition. But in terms of these examples, for example, let me give you a real example, which is breast density. Turns out that African-American women uh, versus uh, white women have different breast densities, which is relevant when you're looking at a mammogram. But if your algorithm has been trained only on white women and can't make that distinction or can't kind of understand that distinction, you're going to get false positives and false negatives in a way that is kind of predictable. And, you know, one of the old adages in computer science is garbage in, garbage out. So that if the training data is itself not representative of all the communities you want to help, you may run into mm. problems. A different kind of version of this, which is also interesting, has to do with the difference between high resource and low resource settings, that a algorithm trained at what is the best uh, thing to do based on good outcome data in a high-resource setting may turn out not work very well in the low-resource setting where your optimal decision or your expectation of follow-up or your expectation of continuity of care is quite different. So we face this problem that uh, these algorithms are, to begin with, quite data-hungry uh, in terms of the training data. We would ideally like to have the most representative, broad, and numerous training data uh, sets we can by really using as much e electronic health record data as we can. But on the flip side, many patients, and I can understand why, are very kind of upset when they find out, and this is a recent lawsuit that was just launched, alleged allegations, allegations the University of Chicago share their electronic health records with Google without asking individual patients one by one. So there's this real trade-off between giving patients autonomy and giving patients privacy about their healthcare data and building train, training set data that is large and also diverse in terms of who it covers. Hmm. So what are some of the, uh, the things you've seen done to counteract this issue or these issues? Well, people are really struggling with it right now. I mean, so one thing that's happening is we have what's called uh, the All of Us Initiative. It was called the Precision Medicine Initiative, and it's a federally funded 
uh, attempt to get basically huge amounts of data on a representative sample of the U.S. population to kind of create a reference set. In other countries, they've had a very different approach, which is, for example, in Denmark, if you, I just learned I, was, I have a grant that takes me out there sometimes. If you get a genetic test, like a 23andMe type test or a clinical test in Denmark, analyzed in Denmark, you, whether you like it or not, the information from the test goes into a centralized database that the country is putting together. So they're basically mm -hmm. building a uh, large set of databases as public databases uh, with the rationale being, you know, the, there the healthcare system is, is funded through the tax base. And uh, this is another way in which you contribute if you are someone who benefits from the healthcare system. So those are two very extreme approaches. Other people are trying to give patients some kind of kickback of some sort, although it turns out that individual patient data is not worth all that much. It's kind of pennies on the dollar kind of thing. And it's the aggregation that matters. And then there's attempts to kind of, especially for communities that are skeptical of research, we have a long, uh, bad history of medical research that mistreats African-Americans, for example, uh, trying mm -hmm. to basically build bridges, build bridges to be more inclusive and to require certain inclusivity in terms of who participates in research as a condition of funding. So we're doing all of these things at once, uh, but it's not a magic, uh, there's no silver bullet here. And I would also say that there's a lot of just big value questions like, do you value representativeness of the data set or do you value autonomy and privacy more? Are there ways in which we can get people to, you know, is opt out the right solution as opposed to opt in? So we see a lot of interesting questions being posed. Hmm. Um, yeah, that sounds very tough. Um, you know, it's funny on the one hand, you want precision medicine, but in order to get true precision and to really help somebody, you have to know all the underlying assumptions and the data that's being used to help them. And like you said, you need to look at the resources they have and, and everything. Hmm. But, yeah, um, and again, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I'm not sure where to go with that. I mean, it just sounds like a lot of work to be done, but um, where where do you see things going in the AI realm anyway? Where are they going right now? Are they headed, what direction are they headed in? Or are these questions yeah, kind of just being brushed aside for right now? No, I mean, so I think we're in, there's something called the hype cycle, which is this very amusing uh, diagram. If you haven't seen it, I recommend Googling it, which is basically this idea that new technologies follow quite uh, a pattern. And there's something called the peak of heightened expectations or something like that. That's followed by the trough uh, of disappointed or disappointed expectations or something like that. And I think what's interesting is that if you kind of just, you know, used uh, Google Analytics or something like that to look at the numbers of mentions, number of news stories, number of journal articles on AI and medicine, it really is ramping up towards uh, the peak. Very little of it has been implemented into clinical care directly yet, although we're starting to see more of that. Typically with other technologies though, we reach this peak, everybody's very excited, investment is high, and there's a lot of very uh, well-publicized failures. And then there's a course correction that kind of is a little bit more modest. And I think that's probably just based on other technologies. That's probably what the future holds for us. But the model of what uh, healthcare looks like, I think, is really under pressure. It used to be a conception of healthcare and research, and they were separate, right? There's researchers and there's doctors. Today, though, the, um, the model that governs, I think, in most people's head just as a design idea is what's sometimes called the learning healthcare system. And in the learning healthcare system, the idea is that the borders between research and patient care are porous, that we are constantly learning from what we do and doing kind of systematic investigation of kind of the care we're delivering. 
that systematic investigation changes our hypothesis and changes our views of what's working through research, and then we're feeding it back into clinical care. And so the idea here is that, you know, uh, already we're tracking quite a lot of patient care. We do it less well in this country than many other countries, in part because electronic health records, which are main repository of health uh, information in this country are, first of all, not all that interoperable compared to our peer countries, so we have multiple mm. different systems in place. But also, they were ultimately designed as billing tools because that's what we need in this country as a you know, largely private health insurance uh, country. And what you want for the ideal billing tool is a little different than what you want for the ideal medical informatics tool in terms of generating big data sets and the like. So we're trying to kind of build a scaffold of learning healthcare system over what is essentially a system of billing tools. And that has quite a bit of growing pain. Um, I think it's also going to be interesting to see whether, you know, there's a lot of investment in this uh, country in these topics, but whether, in fact, in terms of implementation, there'll be more success in healthcare systems that are a little bit more centralized, like the UK, uh, like uh, Denmark, like a few others as opposed to the fragmentation of the U.S. healthcare system where every kind of different hospital system has to make decisions on their own and make buys and stuff like that. Hey, you know what I just realized, like, you know, precision medicine, does that mean it's going to be research-based or is it going to be clinical-based? Ideally, it really needs to be both in order to be good medicine. And if you can't get electronic health records in there in 18 different places, how are you supposed to apply AI to it effectively? You know, you're going to... So it sounds like... Electronic health records really need a kick in the ass. They need to be mandated to be interoperable and, um, you know, where this all yeah. the data can at least be harvested. Otherwise, it's going to cripple efforts to, to do proper uh, personalized medicine. This is my observation. Fair, it's true, but. Yeah, and, and to be fair, Congress has tried a few times to kind of push us in that direction. The problem, a lot of it is lobbying and the fact that these are powerful companies. It's kind of not a, um, a monopoly, but it's kind of an oligopoly, the electronic health care record business. And again, in countries where you just have a single buyer, the uh, state healthcare system, it's much easier for them to decree that everybody use X. The other thing, and I don't know if you know a lot of physicians, the physicians hate the current electronic health records. They really, really hate them. Some of them will admit that it's you know useful in some ways, but essentially their view is that they kind of, uh, how should I put it? They really contribute, there's a lot of evidence, they really contribute to burnout in the sense that the patients, uh, the, the physicians basically are spending a huge second shift after they're seeing the patient, adding and inputting data into the electronic health record. And so when these things are very hard to use and hard to collect the data, there's a reason why, you know, physicians are not so excited about investing a lot more in kind of even more widespread data collection. Whereas in countries where uh, they have systems that are kind of more designed for the way medicine is practiced, then I think they've been a lot more successful. So we also have to think about who's going to be entering this data. And again, if the data itself is not good, if it's not accurate, if it's not updated, if it's not being put in kind of in the right way, it's very hard to get out from it what you want. Yeah. And that'll lead to wrong diagnosis, wrong uh, prescriptions, I mean, wrong everything. So it sounds like a dangerous thing if it's not done properly. Yeah, but always the question is as against what, right? What the status quo is, right? The status quo, I mean, this is what I tell people when they're skeptical of AI, is I remind them, you know, there's this big question about medical AI related to explainability and this question about, uh, you know, in the general data protection regulation, the EU, they put in place what's called a right to an explanation. 
And the idea here is if I can't explain to you why it's recommending X for you, and this is across other domains, not just medicine, that's a problem. So people say that's a problem, call it a right to an explanation. But the truth of the matter is there's tons of things we do right now in medicine that we know that it works. We have no idea whatsoever why it works. So things like aspirin, for example, we really have no idea how aspirin works. And that's kind of crazy if you think about how ubiquitous aspirin is. And we've you know, yeah. been okay with that. We tried, but we've been okay with that. So one of the interesting questions is whether we need a paradigm where you understand where everything works or it's enough to know that it works, some kind of evidence of accuracy and efficacy. Gotcha. Well, all right, beyond, uh, you know, there's a lot more, but beyond AI and health records and precision medicine, what were the other areas that uh, you found yeah, so doing a, important ethical yeah, research? Doing, exactly. I'm doing a lot on reproductive technologies here. And these are both what I would call old school reproductive technologies, by which I mean, you know, old school is a relative term, but like, you know, artif- uh, you know assisted reproductive technologies like artificial insemination, uh, sperm donors, so most of the world, for example, prohibits anonymous sperm donation. In the U.S., we allow it, but there's a lot of pressure on it based on 23andMe and other direct-to-consumer genetic tests, basically allowing people, even if someone is an anonymous sperm donor, kind of zeroing on who that person is. So that's one thing. Uh, surrogacy continues to be controversial, even though it turns out that actually very few people in America uh, use it. Uh, questions about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which is an attempt to biopsy an early embryo and uh, basically make determinations about um, certain kinds of uh, disorders and diseases and before you would decide which ones to implant. So that's the old school stuff. But then the newer school stuff that's very interesting, cutting edge, is uh, uterus transplant. So actually allowing them without a uterus or whose uterus is their disease to receive a uterus donation like a kidney donation from another woman. And the questions about that may be a possible future actually where men could have uteruses implanted on their pelvises, which are fascinating. Uh, questions about gene editing, a lot of controversies about that. We can talk about that. Uh, questions about mitochondrial replacement, which is where you basically have what's sometimes called three-parent mutual fertilization. You take one woman's mitochondria and another woman's nuclear DNA and put them together with a man's sperm. Uh, questions about, this is my favorite, it makes people go crazy when I tell them they don't believe it's true, in vitro gametogenesis or IVG which basically takes adult cells like skin cells off of your body and can induce them to become sperm or egg. So we could derive mm-hmm. sperm or egg from your skin. We've done this in animals. We haven't done it in human beings yet. We've successfully done it in animals, including allowing two female animals to reproduce. So one of the females produces a sperm and one of them produces an egg, which is amazing. So all of these are kind of bubbling up right now in the last five to 10 years. Also egg freezing, which is another kind of interesting controversy. And I spent a lot of time thinking and writing and talking about these. Well, what if someone wants to, I don't know, you know have a kid with themselves, culture two of their, stem, their uh, skin cells, one sperm, one egg? Is yeah. That even allowed? Yeah. So there's an interesting question. So right now in the United States, these technologies, so IVG, for example, would probably have to go get approval from uh, FDA and FDA has taken the position that it will not allow anything that involves germline alteration. So in the U.S., you can't do it. We have these debates about cloning. It's a little bit of a different mechanism. In cloning, you're basically taking the exact same organism and reproducing it. So the idea that you could be the parent to someone who's genetically similar to you. But, you know, people have very strong reactions to this. And I think it's sort of interesting just to figure out why it bothers us uh, so much. I mean, I think it's so obviously it's different than the way reproduction is traditionally done. And if you have 
religious beliefs, that might be a reason why you don't like it. But in terms of kind of secular morality, what is it about being a parent to uh, offspring that have the same genes as we do that is so disturbing, right? Especially if we believe, I think we should, given identical twins, that in fact, you know, a lot of the inputs to who we become are way beyond our genes. I mean, I don't know if there's such a compelling reason why somebody would want to do this, as opposed to these others, where there might be reasons to avoid infertility, to avoid passing on a disease, where the argument for the technology is very compelling. Here, it's hard to kind of tell a compelling story why you ought to be able to reproduce without anybody else's genes involved. But I think the knee-jerk reaction and horror at it is super interesting. And I often think about Freud and kind of discussions about the incest taboo and stuff like that, and whether there's something very kind of deep in our collective unconscious about these things. You could do very strange things, actually. You know, like you still need someone to carry the baby. So, you know, a woman can do yeah. it completely on her own, but a man couldn't. You know, you need the help of the woman. But, you know, I mean, you could have scenarios where, I don't know why, but the woman would, would could say, I want my uh, skin cell to become sperm. And the man could say, I want my skin cell to become egg. And they still have a baby together, but it's swapped. I wonder what that would do. Yep. Yeah, no, do all kinds of strange things. And I think it's interesting because like what I like about this stuff is so I, my partner often says that I work at the intersection of kind of uh, law and science fiction. So I'm interested in that, which is just one step away. And this is a good example of a perfect, you know, would make a great science fiction short story about trying to tell a story about why these people wanted to do this. Uh, in the more immediate present, the main reason people want to use these kinds of technologies is they typically carry a very bad disease, for example, mitochond- mitochondrial diseases, which have terrible effects on the children born. But they also want to be a genetic parent to their own child, right? They don't want to basically just get donor egg and donor sperm. So the idea is this is going to give them a way to both be a genetic parent but avoid the diseases. And I think these cases are much easier to understand why people want to do it in the case for them much stronger. But in the United States currently, Unlike in the UK, you can't use uh, mitochondrial replacement therapy to have two women produce uh, an egg that will be fertilized by a man to avoid this. Uh, and so there's interesting questions about whether people will go abroad for it and why we act this way and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I guess, like, again, I can think of all kinds of strange scenarios. You know, uh, I don't know a group of, I don't know if this is possible, but you know, what if a group of 50 people all wanted to pool parts of their DNA to make one person. I don't know. I don't know why you would do that. But I mean, I guess there's all kinds of strange things that could happen from this. And we don't know who's going to want to do what and you know, what will be possible. But I guess the tools are being created to do all kinds of strange mixes. And again, we, you know, it'd be better if we lived in a system where it was easier to control um, once you have the, uh, once you have the um, technology, easier to control its deployment. So in the UK, for example, they have an agency that that the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority that's involved with kind of licensing individual clinics and has a lot of control from the government as to what's done. In the US, we have a much more decentralized uh, approach to reproductive technologies. One of the reasons why we've long been a place where people come for reproductive technologies. In many countries, even in Europe, for example, if you're a single person or a lesbian or gay couple, it was unavailable for you to get surrogacy or even IVF. Uh, and so people came to the United States who were kind of this uh, place for reproductive refugees, if you will. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, but, 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 but the fact that we've had a relatively, comparatively speaking, let's say fair attitude towards the governance of reproductive technologies 
also means that we kind of have trouble separating out problematic uses from permitted uses. And there are ways to do this. So Congress could change the current uh, statute that says that FDA can't accept anything that involves germline modification to basically say, but not mitochondrial replacement therapy for this reason. That's something I and other people have been pushing for. Congress could do that, and then FDA could review uh, protocols involving just the mitochondrial replacement therapy, but not the germline gene editing. Um, but you know, so far we've been unsuccessful in getting Congress to revisit this, and that's because they don't have a particularly nimble approach to regulating reproductive technologies. Instead, it's very all or nothing here in the United States. Well, when do you think it's going to be? It's going to get to the point where something has to be done. Otherwise, we're going to get uh, a lot of unexpected, unhappy results. Well, I mean, I think already, you know, a lot of people view. I mean, I think one of the interesting questions will be whether we are forced into a different situation by the activities of our peer countries. So already on mitochondrial replacement, there is a gap. On gene editing, there's not a gap now. And that's basically across the world, gene editing is illegal, but probably it will happen in a few places where the regulatory uh, system is less strong. And of course, it did happen in China. And there's some disputes about whether the authorities were aware or not aware and stuff like that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, of course, there's this case of Dr. He, who is the scientist in China, who uh, kind of announced to the world, shocked the world by saying, I've actually gone ahead and done gene editing for the first time uh, ever. And everybody, I think, that I know views that as quite an unethical thing he did, in part because he chose a very strange thing to edit, one where there was no need necessarily to do an edit. It wasn't a very serious uh, need, not medical, not very preclinical data, not clear he had uh, skill, not clearly informed consent. There's a lot of reasons that it was bad. But in reaction to this kind of thing, there's typically a first reaction that I'll say is like very forceful and it's basically prohibit, prohibit, prohibit. And that's kind of where we are in this conversation now. I think what will happen is that we'll see use cases that are much more compelling. We'll see preclinical data that's much better. We'll see a process and we'll see other countries start to open the door a little bit. And when that happens, I think there'll be a lot more pressure on the United States to kind of re-examine where we are and start making more fine-grained distinctions to replace what looks like a sledgehammer in terms of regulation with something that looks a lot more like a scalpel. So what does this look like? Uh, I don't know. What does regulation look like to you 10 years out? Hopefully not longer. But... You know, I think what it is is it's basically um, – giving approval for certain very specific forms of germline gene editing. I think it has a multi-generational follow-up. I think it has to be extremely serious disorders. I think um, it has to be uh, kind of things where we've done a little bit more of a deliberative democracy exercise to understand what the people, what the country really thinks. But I think it does allow for the most serious disorders where we have the most confidence of the edit we can make, where we know how to make the edit, where we agree to do it in a limited number of people and track the results over time. That's what I think the more permissive regime looks like. But it's hard to get there when you start with a, you know, a world of no. And indeed, it's interesting, a lot of the rhetoric, I just wrote a paper on this, a lot of the rhetoric about germline gene editing right now strongly resembles the rhetoric around in vitro fertilization in the 1970s and 1980s. And I think uh, one of the questions is there, we kind of were able to, it got through in England without a lot of regulation. Even in the United States, there was some congressional debate and ethics committees and stuff like that, but there was a big impasse uh, there. 
uh, that kind of made it so that nobody really said, oh God, you have to regulate this and you have to uh, figure this up uh, ahead of time. And we have to have this long conversation. So I think one of the interesting things is whether we could imagine a future where some forms of germline gene editing are treated the same way we do in vitro fertilization, or whether instead we will always associate this kind of work with kind of Nazi experiments. What about if um, there's real no, you know, the technology continues to develop very quickly um, and there is no comprehensive legislation? What does the landscape look like then? Do we see a big pressure to make designer babies, things like that? I mean, what, what does it look like to you then? I mean, right now we're in a state of flat out prohibition. And I think that chances are that's where we'll stay until we move to something a little more gentler. Now, there are people, there's what's called the biohacking community, which is kind of interesting, which are people who say, Hey, I don't care about your regulation, right? I'm going to alter my body or alter uh, my children. One of the questions is how easy this becomes to do and whether this becomes kind of garage DIY uh, genomics uh, at some point. I think that that's probably unlikely for the germline editing. For the somatic editing where you're editing, uh, more likely to edit an adult, for example, I think there's more of a question about whether that's a possibility. And there's a group of people who really think it's my right to do what I want with my body. And what I want to do with my body is to edit my genome. Uh, and so I think there's some pressure there. And again, when it comes to this biohacking movement, countries have taken very different approaches. But when it comes to germline editing, you know, it's becoming easier and easier to do, requires less sophistication, but still requires considerable amounts. And there's questions about whether control over imports and exports, for example, and other things can be used effectively as a way of reigning in editing. The WHO, the World Health Organization, has recommended a registry recently for all uh, gene editing, somatic, uh, and germline, all experiments. So I think it's a good first step because you really don't know everything that's out there. Hmm. Okay. Um, do you see any, I mean, do you think the future is more dystopian or that we're going to find our way and, you know, well, things will make sense? And uh, again, we'll have this technology is available for limited but important cases. And what, what are your thoughts? I'm an, what we'll yeah, likely I, so I'm a techno optimist. I think it's my normal <laughs> state of being. I also have a lot of skepticism about biological and gen gen genetic exceptionalism. And let me put it this way. I think probably the introduction of the iPhone has been more of a disruption. If we look at the history of our civilization and where it was going and where it's going now, and in terms of things that have had unexpected side effects and really changed the way, I think the iPhone has had much more of a disruptive uh, effect and successors, I mean, smartphones in general, on our civilization than I could imagine gene editing having in the foreseeable future. And yet, it's only been a very short period of time that we've had these technologies. I'm, when I went to law school, I didn't even have a cell phone, let alone a smartphone, and I'm not that no. old. And, you know, I think that what's interesting is that that kind of tech, and there's some back and forth now about this vis-a-vis -vis Facebook and the like, that kind of tech doesn't require these kind of pre-market clearance or these long conversations about where it is we should be going and international treaties and stuff like that. And I think uh, for me, it's kind of an interesting uh, thing uh, that we really don't you know, know what's, uh, what's gonna really be disruptive for our society. And I tend to think we tend to focus perhaps on the wrong things. Uh, because they are tangible and obvious. And in particular, I think the biological makes us fearful in a way that the non-biological, but technological doesn't. So if you ask me 
which is the technology to have worried about. Had you asked me a while ago, I would not have said, oh, gosh, worry about the iPhone. But now that we're here now, I just think they've changed our society dramatically. Now, for good and for ill, there's amazing things that you can do. I and mean, when I go and I, I feel like I don't have to sit in front of my computer the way I used to uh, when I started my career. And I think that's amazing. When I think about people with childcare needs, when I think about the idea of coming in and out, I think that's wonderful. When I think about workaholism, when I think about attention span, when I think about uh, traffic accidents, it's terrible. But to me, you know, I think that uh, I think we're very bad at predicting things that are going to be incredibly disruptive. And so, and for the most part, when I look at the society my parents lived in, or the society my grandparents lived in, I feel pretty happy to be living today. And I hope that my grandchildren and my children will have the same reaction in the future. Now, there are some things that are existential threats, like climate change, where I think we're probably not spending enough of our time thinking about it. But I'd be much more worried about iPhones and climate change than I would have gene editing. So that's me. Okay. Well, very good. Well, what's the best way for people to get in touch and hear more of your thoughts or read papers or, you know, communicate? Yeah. So you can find me on the Harvard Law School website. Just look under faculty. And then you can also uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cohen Prof, C-O-H-E-N-P-R-O-F. So at Cohen Prof. You might also want to check out the center that I'm the faculty director of, the Petrie Flom Center. It's not just me there, but a number of scholars and people, policymakers, doing great work and we've got a great listserv that you can sign up for if you want to see what's going on we put almost every event we do online as a video so even if you're not in cambridge massachusetts you can be part of the community okay well that's great well i I appreciate you coming on the podcast and your thoughts thank you so much you're listening to the future tech podcast with richard jacobs Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.